Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. We're back and better than ever. A new web interface for the rest of the NBA season and more. Props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV50 to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Polina Edmonds. And today on the show, I'm so excited to uh, announce our guest for this episode. I'm going to be interviewing Linda Lieber, who was the coach of Brian Boitano, who won the 88 Olympics. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Linda. Lena, I'm so excited to be here. This is my first podcast I've ever done. So this is really fun for me. Super excited. (laughs) So first question that I have for you is just kind of where did you get your background in skating from? Um, Because I know you were kind of coaching when uh, Brian first came to you, right? My beginning was kind of a crazy beginning because, and it turned out to be fortuitous. I skated in the Pacific Northwest. And um, when I was 14, my skater, my skater, my coach came down with hepatitis. And I never really um, had official lessons from him again. And um, that was difficult. But um, it taught me a how to be a better teacher, I'd say. I would uh, come home from the rink, and if he was pretty good, not in the hospital, I would uh, call him up and say, hey, I'm having trouble into my left bracket. And he would say, well, what kind of trouble? And they'd say, try lifting your left hip, try pulling back on your arm, you know, adjust your hips more. Um, And then I would go back to the rink the next day and apply these things and find out what worked. And so it really taught me um, jumping, spinning figures, which are not really essential anymore, um, taught me how to teach them and what what made them work. So it, it was fantastic, actually. Awesome. So what age did you start training Brian? Um, and did you see his talent right away or did you notice it, um, like later on as he kept developing in the sport? I started him when he was eight and I noticed that the very first day I gave him a private lesson, um, there's two stories here. (laughs) When, uh, when, when he was, First on skates, he started in the beginner lessons. Shortly, like three or four times later, uh, he was in my class five. And to pass the class, you had to do crossovers both ways and a two foot spin. 
And so he nailed the crossovers. And it came time to the two foot spin and he just spun so fast he fell. And so I said, Bryant, slow down. I can't pass you if you fall. And he just couldn't help himself and he did another whirling spin <laughs> till he fell down again. And then the third time was the charm. He slowed down and I passed him. Um, so that was when I really first met him. Then um, it wasn't much longer than that that I gave him his first private lesson. And I came home from that and I told my husband, um, I have this great skater. You know, he's this, he's that. I mean, here he is eight years old. And my husband said, oh, you always think your skater is going to be great. And I said, nope, this one's going to be world champion. And he was not only world champion, but he was Olympic champion. And now when I look back on that, I think that's amazing, you know, but I thought it at the time. That is so outstanding uh, to notice from the start, like you were saying, and kind of manifest that into happening. I know it obviously took a lot of work to have him become both world and Olympic champion, but wow, amazing. Like I'm going to tell you, um, mm -hmm. because you're a skater and you understand, when I gave him the first lesson, um, he, I was trying to teach him a single revolution flip. I mean, he had already been practicing on his own. So this was his first private lesson. Mm -hmm. And, um, he looked at me when he started the jump and then he did like a dancer where you spot. He was like a cat. He tried to do the whole turn and keep his eyes on me the whole time. And <laughs> he couldn't quite make it around. And so I just said, let your head go with your stomach button and he did it and he was just so um there were so many things about it he tried so hard um and he wanted approval and he was so coachable and he ended up being that way not afraid you know they're all the things that make a skater coachable and uh he had those and i felt it in the first lesson he loved skating he didn't want the lesson to be over. He didn't want to get off the ice. And um, he was just very pliable. That's fantastic. So in terms of ability, you were seeing signs already from the earliest start that he had a lot of promising qualities to be both a really good just student for you to coach, but also skater in general. Yeah. So then as he kept competing, you know, at the lower local levels, uh, did you notice from him as a young skater, um, a, like a mental consistency with the competitions he was doing already at that age? Or was that something that really developed for him as he got older? I think it's a process. It's, mm -hmm. you know, learning mental um, is different for each skater, but it's still a process for each skater. And um, Brian is a person who likes to be sure. So, for him, nothing ever went in his programs that he wasn't fully capable and fully practiced in. So in his very first competition, when he was eight years old, he went in Pixie Derby up at Belmont Iceland. And um, I drove up there, say it was at 10 o'clock, right? And so I drove up there like quarter to 10. And out of the lobby in guards, came Brian out to my car and he was ready for the competition. 
And he said, you know, I rolled on my window, say, hey, Brian, it's not for, you know, another half hour or whatever. And um, he said, I know, I know, but I need to know when they're going to ask me. And I said, they will tell you and I will tell you when they're ready. And he said, but how will I know? How will I know? And I said, okay. <laughs> and I got out of the car and walked in with him. And I said, I will tell you when they're ready. And then he went out and it was a simple competition, you know, I don't know, just some skills, basic skills, um, probably back crossovers and spins again, you know, but um, he, he just needed to know everything, how it was going to be, he had to be sure that he was prepared. Definitely. Were there any other qualities that you noticed in him um, competing as a young skater that also sparked your interest that he could be a really good competitor, not just good in practice? Like, did he really love performing or uh, was he good under adrenaline, anything like that? I think this is not what you're asking, but I think one of his greatest and most valuable qualities was not his talent or his natural anything, but his work ethic. He had incredible work ethic. He also had something you can't buy. He had a will to win. Um, that's something that's indefinable, but when you coach someone, you recognize it. I love that. Uh, the tenacity that you're talking about and the sheer mm -hmm. determination. I can totally see Brian with that quality, just knowing him even, you know, so many years later. But so in, in that regard, you're talking about how hard of a worker he was. Uh, I've heard stories of stuff that he would do. His own um, advice to me as a young skater was to train the triple toe combination off of every single jump to feel really comfortable, all of that type of stuff. So since he had that inner drive, uh, were there ever moments that you as a coach needed to tell him to not overwork himself in oh, training? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I mean, uh, I don't even know what stories I should tell you. Um, <laughs> but... He was, uh, I think, 11 or maybe 12, um, I think 12. And uh, he was starting work on triple sow cows. And, um, you know, he was just doing them when I was giving him lessons. And then uh, he'd do them and do them and do them. And then he'd say, Linda, my knee hurts. And I went, nothing. You know, I just thought, okay, well, I'll do something else or something. And then um, I think it might have happened too more times and then I went this is not Brian he never complains he wants to do everything something has to be going on with his knee I mean he was just a little kid you know and so I talked to his parents and they took him to the doctor and he had what's called jumper's knee and um, jumper's knee in adults is um, the tendons pull off your knee they pull off the kneecap but in children it pulls cracks in the kneecaps. Mm. So he was overworking his knee and um, it was pulling cracks in the kneecap. So his parents uh, got this advice from the doctor that he should stay off the ice and they would cast it. And they came back and told me this. And of course, I said, well, why don't you try a sports doctor? So they went to a sports doctor and he said, you have to stay off the ice completely for a couple months, um, nothing. But you don't have to cast it. If you cast it, you'll lose muscle and you'll be way, way behind. 
And um, so then they allowed him to do figures. And for six months, he could only do figures. And he did figures through public session at Sunnydale Ice Palace with the music and the lights flashing, you know, find a little corner, find the middle, whatever. He got, he was on his third test then. He just finished juveniles and um, he got great loops and great figures. And then about three months before the competition, they said, you can freestyle again. And his parents were very smart. Um, they didn't buy him new boots so that he couldn't freestyle, even if he wanted to, you know, no, no, boot, no new boots, his feet were growing, no new blades, he could just do figures. And then he got boots and blades and um, started freestyling in the three months and he won the intermediate. Mostly because he had great figures. I mean, you know, he didn't really like figures, um, you know, as a 10 to 12 year old, but when it was all he could do, he ended up loving them and really appreciating them. And that was, I think, the start of that development of him being able to do figures. It was always a great advantage for him after that. Yeah, it's, it teaches really great uh, skating skill to be able to obviously hold your edge in that way and repeat it and all of that stuff. And I obviously have never done figures in my generation, but uh, the one thing I can kind of relate to that is our moves in the field testing that every skater needs to go through as well as um, my mom had me do ice dance tests for a long time. So uh, that always, you know, I, I didn't love the non-dynamic feeling of that as opposed to jumping or spinning. Um, it was all about the edge work and the speed and all of the precision. But as a skater that's older now and loves just skating for the freeness of it, I, I definitely attest a lot of that feeling to uh, the base tests that I took as a young child. <laughs> the part of the event, which at that time was, I think, a half. I don't know what, what figures were actually when he was, you know, in the intermediate, but whatever. They were a large portion of your final mark. And mm -hmm. since he didn't really like them, he would have relied on just his freestyle. But because he learned to like them, that part of his skating became an advantage for him. It would have been if you had to include some sort of uh, dance or flexibility and he didn't really like it, but had been forced to do it. And then it became part of his skating. So um, I was just making the point that the situation, he made the situation, which wasn't good, work for him. And then it lasted his whole career as an advantage. So I know that you had Brian work with um, other coaches sometimes for consultation lessons um, as he was growing in the sport. Uh, can you kind of speak on that? Like what was your motivation for it and how much help did they give Brian in those times? Well, that's a really complicated question because a lot of people now team coach. At mm -hmm. the time, everyone was just their own coach and I did everything. I did figures, freestyle, make up the programs, whatever. Um, so I felt I shouldn't and couldn't be their sole source of knowledge. And so, um, I think the first trip I took Brian on and my, my other skaters, uh, was to LA and it was while he wasn't skating. It was when his injury was knee. So he was like 12 
and we all went to LA and we watched uh, Barbara Rolls teach, we watched um, Carlo teach, we watched Ricky Harris, who was a modern dance choreographer. We went to, and Frank Carroll, I can't even remember all the people. I took them to rinks, I had them watch, then I put them on the ice for patch and freestyles, then we went to another rink, and um, then, we came back and I brought Ricky Harris up to give a clinic in, in the Sunnyvale rink. So that was kind of the beginning. Then I took them to uh, Colorado, I took them to Sun Valley, I took them to Colorado Springs. And um, when he was older, then I felt it was a good thing for him to go on his own. When he was like, 12, 13, 14, I didn't let any of the kids go. I exposed them to other teachers, but I didn't let them go without, you know, they're not because of me, but just because they were young. And I felt like I wanted to be able to take that knowledge and help them assimilate it. Mm -hmm. So after that, um, what was that? 84, I guess 84 after the Olympics. I sent Brian and Yvonne Gomez, who was his training partner, over to Europe to take from DEA Gay a Gay, and everybody will hear about him in Medline now. But he was uh, a figure guru for Europe. And um, so they went over to France and they were there, I'm gonna guess they were there two or three weeks without me. I don't remember exactly. Um, and then I went over with uh, my youngest child so that I could see what they learned, see what was valuable and help them assimilate it. But my idea of having them go alone was that they, I wouldn't be standing over their shoulder and they're trying to say, oh, that's the way Linda does it or that, you know, so they could just take it all in. So he was the first summer. Then the next summer I sent them to Evie and Mary that was in 85. Um, in 86, he went to John Nix. Both he and Yvonne went. And um, in 87, to Sandra Bezik. And that was at Dick Button's behest. He told me, you should have Brian take from Sandra Bezik for choreography. And mm -hmm. I sent him alone. Um, and then I think after a week or 10 days, I flew back sat in the rink and watched what she'd done, and I was completely floored. It was just incredibly wonderful. And um, so then, you know, she did both his programs and his show afterwards, and yeah, she was a genius for Brian. That's amazing. So I feel like in, in culture right now for uh, skating, there are teams, like you were saying, that work with students, but there's also kind of a lot of gatekeeping in terms of who works with who. Um, and I don't always see the most, I don't see a lot of uh, skaters doing consultant um, coaching, like you were just talking about sending skaters. So for you as a coach, how did you organize it so that there was a trust between you and your students so that you didn't feel like they would like end up switching coaches from you if they went to a different coach and maybe liked what they were saying more than maybe working with you. Yeah. Um, that's really, I, I don't know how I was so lucky, but, um, I guess I always felt when Brian started skating well, 
that I had a duty to make him the best in the world. So I wanted him not to be the best skater in the world when he was 12, but the best 12 year old in the world. And I thought if I can make him the best 12 year old, the best 13 year old, the best 14 year old, I'll get to keep him. And if I can't do that, then he, he deserves more than I can give him. I mean, I always felt um, that uh, I had a duty to his talent and to his work ethic and to his possibility. So um, I guess he, he could have left. I mean, he could leave today. I mean, we still work together. Um, I think that's the most valued, the word you use, trust, that's probably the most valuable thing that we have going between us. Trust. There, I, I trust him with my life, with anything important to me, not with my secrets, just kidding. <laughs> we both know too much about each other. Um, but yeah, that's just something that develops and it's, you can only give it if it's well-placed. I mean, there are a lot of people I wouldn't trust. And I'm sure there's a lot of people he wouldn't trust. But after all these years together and after all the things you go through, the disappointments, the highs, the everyday practice, um, you know so much about each other. So you know if it's trustable. I think, I think that's what I think. I mean, I knew I could trust him and he, I was trustable, you know, and he must have known it. And, um, and I still work with Yvonne. Yvonne and Brian and I are still um, in contact nearly every day. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful gift for me to have um, my skaters in my life. I can relate on the consultation uh, coaching classes because my coaches, David Glenn and my mom, they had sent me to work with Christy Nuss and Frank Carroll and um, Sasha Fideev as well on jump technique. Yeah. Which really helped me uh, to be able to kind of go get some advice um, and feel a little bit of adrenaline and then come home, be comfortable and be with my trusted coaches. Um, and there was never any uncomfortableness uh, between any of those relationships. But what was most key that I felt in those times were that the technique that I was learning um, from these other coaches were very parallel to the technique that David was coaching me. Um, so I wanted to ask when you sent, um, Brian and your other students to different coaches, did you look for specific people that, um, taught in a similar way to you, or was that not as important to you? No, I wasn't looking for that at all. Uh, for figures, I was looking honestly for Brian to get more points because the European judges would recognize him because I was counting on DDA gay gay to say, Hey, I coached him. And, you know, so after French, you know, he's pretty good. I mean, so that was a political thing. And did Brian and Yvonne learn um, a lot there? We, we all learned a lot of the European method, which was so different and uninteresting to anybody in figures now. So I'll be brief, but it was basically trace which is to make the lines on the figure as close as possible. And in America, it was quality. You know, it was, are the turns uh, uh, perfectly shaped? Are they equal? Are they um, lined up? So they were more um, 
the well they took a lot more knowledge and practice to do the american method you know but over in europe they just put it in one line doesn't matter if you've got incorrect things and so that also taught me uh, about the judging system and which judges and it uh, had them i had them and they did themselves a lot more tracing at the at the risk of something else they still had to get out of the united states and do all the correct turns and all you know the lined up of the circles and that but they also learned about tracing then um the next year i sent him to evie and mary because i wanted him to have a male teacher i was a woman i was running things um you know he was in his early 20s and i felt he needed a good strong masculine male influence um so i sent him there and i it was great you know and they taught them a lot of things um that were different from what i did um and they had some really good ideas and uh i incorporated those and the ones that they did that didn't work that i thought didn't were silly we just dropped and then um i sent him to john nix for finishing you know not just raw skating but john is a very detailed man and he's into the toe point and the fingertip and the center of the spin and the music he was just very detailed and that was also another man um and so brian went there and then the last year uh for his choreography because his choreography was very weak <laughs> considered what it became you know so that was great that's really cool so it sounds like there was both kind of a networking to be able to um, have so many people be on brian's team so to speak from different areas uh as well as obviously everything that brian was getting out of it um, and that you were getting out of it well if they were on his team <laughs> i mean i think they wanted to keep him you know and i think they were hopeful they would to let you know that it wasn't always smooth sailing but mm -hmm. it was very beneficial to brian and very beneficial to vaughn yeah so well it's actually a perfect segue um i would love to hear your insight based off of what was happening in that time period in the 80s um, going into the 90s and i know every generation has to do with their types of uh working through the politics of skating and so for you uh at like at what point in brian's career did you or any of your students careers um did you start to notice that there there were some politics involved with skating and as a coach who's kind of the leader of um, younger people that are going through the sport, like how do you navigate that in a way that doesn't uh, detract from skating, um, but instead pushes them to focus on the only thing that they can control, which is their skating? Yeah, I think uh, politics is always gonna be in a judge sport. And it may not even be politics, it could just be a matter of opinion. So uh, even when my skaters were little, I said, you know, if you're one or two or three places off, it could, you just have to accept it. You know, you may have the best jumps, but they may have the best spins. You may have the best spins, they may have the best footwork. You can argue all day long with a judge, but if you're four places off, 
then we're going to do something about it. And I actually had uh, a little skater who was in um, juvenile uh, up at Belmont, and I thought she was first. I was sure she was first, and she came fourth. And I marched right up there about the marks, and there was actually a mistake. Isn't that amazing? Like one of the judges had put like, I don't know, 1.3 instead of 3.1 or something. They'd made a mistake on their card. And I just, I complained. I said, how can you do this? She, she's not even getting a medal and she was clearly the best. I don't know what I did. I ranted and raved. And they, um, you know, they, they gave her a medal and they um, changed the score because the judge was sorry too that they had inverted their numbers. That was back when you wrote your marks on a little piece of paper. I mean, no computers. I didn't even know that you could get the results to be changed if you protested them like that. That's cool. Well, I mean, that was a, you know, I mean, you shouldn't be able to, right? But she made a mistake. I, was, I couldn't understand it. I didn't know how to explain it to the parents, to myself, to my other skaters. So, um, but in general, I think, you know, you can complain, well, I did a better this than they did. But if they did something better than you, then fix that. You know, if they, if you're the best jumper and they're the best spinner, shore up your weakness. Don't complain. And I think that stands you in good stead in life too. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it, the only thing that you can control is what you put out there. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. What I'm about to say might shock you, but the greatest quarterback of all time is not just a goat on the field. He's a goat when it comes to investing too. He invests in stocks, crypto, and even art. Now you can invest like the goat with Masterworks. Masterworks is the investing platform that lets you buy shares representing an investment in art from icons like Picasso, Monet, and Warhol. Art prices actually outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1992 to 2021. In fact, early investors already received over 30% IRR in 2020 and 2021 from the sale of just two paintings. This is your opportunity to join 300,000 other members and invest like the GOAT. Plus, you can get priority access with our game day promo. Go to masterworks.art slash believe. That's masterworks.art slash believe. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash believe or use the code Believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free. It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guaranteed. Did um, you and Brian ever face any pushback from judges and officials in terms of uh, the programs that you were putting out and stuff like that? And, and what was your reaction to it as the level that he was at and obviously you being as confident as you were in Brian and Brian and as confident as he was in you? Did you guys tend to listen to the judges and everything that they were saying more? Or were you more just kind of like, we're going to stay on track and do our thing and confident in what we have and what we've got? I think it's a combination. I think um, for me, it's consider the source. So uh, someone might tell you to help you and someone might tell you to take you down. So First of all, I would consider the source. And second of all, I would consider objectively, did that seem to think it would be better? 
you know, it, it was like, um, if someone said, you know, your music is terrible, that's not a very helpful comment, you know? So you, you sit and you, you talk to them and say, well, what, what are you thinking? Is it too modern? Do you think this? Do you think that? And then you take that piece and you say to yourself, well, would he be better to a classical piece? You know, what do I think of that? And then if I think there's some truth, then I would go ask other judges and other people, what do you think of this? What do you think of um, a costume? What do you think of this? And then um, if there was merit, I would think about it and consider it and, and make changes. And if there was no merit, I don't even wanna say this. Sometimes I would say I did it when I didn't because <laughs> the person who gave that information would then think, oh, you know, a judge, like a judge might say, oh, yes, they really have um, <laughs> made a great improvement by getting that spin much lower when maybe it wasn't lower or whatever. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, I kept notebooks of uh, opinions of judges and coaches and thought about them and then um then i discuss them you know if i thought there was value with them with brian that's awesome yeah i i know that so many skaters deal with so many issues from so many opinions coming in constantly and it's just kind of like who do you listen to it's it's really difficult. I, I was actually his filter especially at a national competition or higher you know people would come up and he just would just disappear and then you know, I, I mean, he'd go in the locker room or do what he wanted to do. And I'd never tell him anything during the competition. If some judge did tell me something that would have helped him during the competition, I can't even imagine what, like, hey, that skater is going to something, you know, then skate, I don't know, in a different order, moving, you know, and then I go, and then that's going to help Brian. But mostly people think things I heard from people, coaches, judges, um, if I thought they were valuable, I wrote them down. And then afterwards, the ones that were valuable, I'd bring up, you know, during a lesson when we're, he's doing patch or something. And then we talk about it. Yeah, there's way too much information. And you, if you, as a skater, concern yourself with that, you can hardly get through your own programs and your own workouts. Definitely. So I think, uh, I guess I would say like I was a manager, which I didn't know that I was, you know, but um, just between the things, getting your blade sharpened, where, what kind of blades you wear, what kind of boots you wear, um, what music you're going to have, uh, how many patches you're going to do, how many freestyles you're going to do, just all those things and all the people, the costumes, you know, that all that is kind of a, a mini management project. And by the time you get to be an international skater, it has to do with uh, your timing, how many competitions are good for you to prepare for the nationals or the worlds. Um, they might be good for you, but not good for another skater. And so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, overall, as you called it, a gatekeeper, but just someone to keep tabs on all the little pieces that go into it. A lot Definitely. of times it's parents. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Before the Olympics, uh, 
did you try to block media or like any type of hype um, coming into Brian before the games because it was such a such a heavy time for him to be going up against Brian Orser, you know, the Battle of the Bryans, all of that media hype was very, very prevalent. So how did you navigate that to get him to just focus on himself and not have to deal with all the surrounding noise? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing because media was different than it's ever prevalent now with social media. I don't even know how skaters deal with it. But then it was kind of controllable. And he was lucky enough to go to 84 Olympics. So he had an experience and we, we could see what was happening to the super popular skaters and how difficult it was to hand, handle it. So um, the year going in or after, you know, yeah, probably about nine months ahead, um, I talked to U.S. Figure Skating and their people that help you with media and told them um, that Brian was willing to do media up until September. And he would be very helpful. He would do photos, he would do this, he would do that. But after September, he, he was not doing it. Um, and I think that was the end of September kind of, but it was running into that season where there was Skate Canada, Skate America, Nationals, Olympics. And um, so we were very lucky the way it was. Sports Illustrated came out, Life Magazine, which you probably never even heard of, came out, um, and Time Magazine. Um, everyone came out early and uh, took photos. So they had all their B-roll and all their beautiful colored photos of him doing whatever they wanted. And then um, I think he did a couple press conferences. You know, but he didn't do any individual interviews. He didn't do um, any more photo shoots. Um, I remember out at Dublin when Sports Illustrated came out. Oh, it was so incredible. They sent Heinz Klutmeyer, who was a great sports photographer, and um, they took the rink and every little crack in it was covered up with black um, felt and taped. There was not a pinch of light in it. And then they uh, did this incredible photo shoot all through the night and they put up uh, strobe cameras. I don't even know if they have those anymore. So they could take his um, triple axle and his quad in the lights so they could stop it. Cause now you can just take it and stop it, right? But there was no ability to take a photo and get the stop so they, we had these wonderful photos that they took, but then um, they were out of there. You know, it was done and pictures were taken and they could do what they wanted with them. So yeah, I don't know if you could do that anymore. And Nathan is doing a very good job now, I think, with controlling media, being polite, but not participating. Yeah, sending, setting boundaries. Mm -hmm. obviously really important for any athlete, but especially at that um, height of your career. Uh, I was just talking to Brian about this at the rink, but, you know, Nathan going in with all of this pressure, second Olympics, you know, this and that. Um, Brian was relating to it because of the Battle of the Bryans in 88. And 
there's just, there's already so much going on in your own head that you have to deal with and you have to kind of find control and inner peace with to be able to go out and do what you need to do without all of the noise around you. And so with all of this added um, stuff, it just, it gets really, really distracting. Uh, So I think it's so respectable that um, you just shut the media down in September and you're like, no more. (laughs) He's got to focus and that's it. I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't seen what happened in 84. I mean, if, if, yeah. So that experience really was helpful. And I think I don't even know people, kids carry their phones with them. How can they set down social media? They want, I mean, it's just ever prevalent. I just think it would be so difficult. Definitely. It's, it's definitely a different ball game now. Um, and there's just so much more exposure on so many different levels, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's very you different. It. You grew up with it. And so you know, <laughs> someone else has to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely ups and downs. There's, there's the ups of, you know, getting exposure and, you know, maybe getting a little bit more recognition, um, even if you don't always podium, but you're just a fun person to kind of follow online. But then at the same time, the drawback is you're getting so many opinions from a lot of strangers and they're not always positive. So that can really be detrimental to a skater's head, their mindset as well. So it's pluses and negatives for sure. Well, how about you? What was it like for you? I mean, you were right here in San Jose, right? Competing. Yeah. That must have been just so difficult with all the people you knew and the expectations. Yeah. You know, it's definitely hard. Um, and especially when nationals was in San Jose during that Olympic year, um, it was, it was a mix of both being very excited and, um, very happy that I had so many family members and, uh, just people from my hometown, whether that be from my school or my dance studios or wherever they could all come and support. But then at the same time, that just makes you want to skate well, even more because everyone's there watching it live. Um, and then of course online, everybody can always follow. So it's, it's a lot of pressure, but at the same time, that's kind of what skating comes with. And so for me, I kind of was aware of that and I was prepared for it. And also, uh, personally, when I see negative comments online or opinions that I don't like, I'm pretty headstrong and stubborn myself. So I'm, I'm very set on what I like and what I'm going to do, um, which has helped me in my career and maybe also, maybe hindered me at some points where maybe I should have been more open, you know, who knows? There's always, there's always things that you can do differently, but I, I definitely am grateful that I I don't get as sucked in as I see some other people get. That's fantastic. I applaud you for it. (laughs) I don't have any social media, so I don't have to deal with it, but I always look at people your age and just think, wow. I know. And I look at kids that are younger than me by like 10 years and it's our, there's already such a gap in terms of like ability with all of that stuff. So it's, it's only going to get weirder, unfortunately. It's fine. Well, I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have uh, to coaches who have great skaters today? Uh, Cause I know that we're, we're kind of on the come up of a lot of new young talented coaches that are coming up with some really, really great skaters. Um, but with the, the current culture in skating right now, um, a lot of times those, those talented skaters end up switching to a quote-unquote famous coach to kind of help them with that political game in terms of 
networking and all of that stuff. So what would you recommend or, you know, say in support of the young coaches that are making their name right now? That's really difficult. I think that was going on, you know, when I was coaching. I mean, everyone wanted Brian, all the name coaches. Um, I think you have to be, if you have really good talent, you have to provide everything that talent needs. Um, and um, I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't like the fact that I think it's now legal to try to poach a student. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I, I have this moral code. And um, so if you're up against someone who doesn't have it, and your skater or your skater's parents can't see that or don't value it, it's, it's tough. I mean, I don't have advice for it, but I think you have yourself to live with. And um, so give good information, give it with good intent, and um, don't poach other people's students. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, you know, what do you think? No, true. I, I think that's super true. Um, I, unfortunately, you know, a lot of it has to do with parents, especially at that age for skaters. So it's, it's not necessarily the relationship that the coach has with the student, but more so the expectation that parents have in terms of results or whatever. So it just, the line can definitely get blurred there. But um, yeah, just, just knowing my mom being my coach throughout everything. And we also were just super loyal and trusting in, David's technique uh, with me and it, it was a really great relationship. So I think having an open communication pathway between parent and coach is really important so that um, nobody feels like they're not on the same page, even though obviously I think that the coach needs to have um, priority in terms of like they're actually knowledgeable in the sport. My mom's a little bit different because she was actually a coach. And so I could see how that doesn't always work out the same way when a parent doesn't have any background in skating, but yeah, I think just trust needs to be established. And it, it, it definitely pains me to see a lot of, um, a lot of lack of trust these days in skating with but, people that I talk well, to. Um, I feel like trust is earned and a good coach can produce good results almost instantaneously. And so you know, if you as a skater are skating around and you're taking from someone and they uh, tell you, hey, you know, on that entry, why don't you press your left arm in front more? I think, da, da, da. and then you try it and it works, then you think, okay. And other, there are other coaches who say, just pull in, just jump. You know, that's not really helpful. So, um, I think that, I mean, it might be helpful in some instance, but in most instances, you know, you need technique and proper technique and good coaches can teach proper technique and get good results. And so in many cases, that's why the skaters go to them because they are good and they are better than the coach and they know more than the coach they're with. So um, there's no, no safeguards against um, not being excellent. And I think the excellent coaches will rise to the top. 
There's just no doubt about it. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. a coach will be lucky once, um, but not really because there's, I mean, can you imagine Nathan Chen being lucky with what he can do? No, he's had expert instruction and uh, expert technique and someone, you know, keeping track of him all along. I mean, his, his mom was very, very vigilant when he was nine years old. Mm -hmm. She was smart and she could tell when he was learning things. Um, and he's been with several coaches, but I think the choices have been good. They've been beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think the cream will rise to the top. And for those who have to rely on stealing, sneaking, you know, they're not going to rise to the top. You might get some in a short while, but you're not going to make them great. Yeah, I like that. I think that's very true. But it's hard when someone's, you know, poaching on you. Mm -hmm. yeah, but you just have to keep putting out good work. One other question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think about edges on jumps? Because as a coach, you know, um, a let's takes off from an outside edge and a flip takes off from an inside edge. But right now in skating, there has been a lot of top skaters uh, who are meddling with uh, wrong edges on jumps. So we're seeing inside edge lutzes and outside edge flips, um, and they don't always get called for it by our technical panel. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I would love to know. Well, what do you think? I think that a person can do a lutz and they can do a flip and they can learn it. But if they've learned it incorrectly, unlearning is really difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where foundation begins you know and and um so if you start out with a weak foundation and you get there because you're quick and light and have bad technique it will all come crumbling down and that's very 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 hard um and to take a person who has no outside edge takeoff um and teach them that is very difficult and they have it can be done it can be done, but it takes learning another jump. In other words, you have a flutz and you have a lutz. And so you have to just start over from scratch and do half lutzes and single lutzes until you have that technique and you just keep that ankle over. And that's very, very difficult. A lot of skaters won't go through it. I feel sorry for any skater who doesn't have good technique from the beginning because um learning that is so difficult yeah what do you think about it, it it's such an interesting subject for me because um my coaches david and my mom they sent me i worked a lot on edges actually with sasha fedeev so he gave me a lot of exercises for my lutz technique and my flip technique to make sure that everything was proper um and I, I do think it's really important from the base level to learn good technique, the foundation, um, like you said, because it's so hard to go back after you have years and years of muscle memory with these yeah. tiny muscles to make it happen. But it's disappointing for me to see uh, skaters still be rewarded for wrong edges at competitions. Um, I, I definitely don't think that 
that qualifies them to be a top skater if you don't have a proper jump um, at the end of the day, like you're saying a flutz, like I don't necessarily count that as a Lutz jump, but that's the way that judging is right now is that they, they do still count it as a Lutz. Um, and I don't think that that means that there should be dashes or anything, but. but I think Karen Chan yeah. got called on her flip. Yesterday. Oh, her flip edge. Yeah, probably. But I think they all get little like exclamation points. Yeah. She got an exclamation. So what does that mm-hmm. do? Doesn't that take off her marks? Um, I think that it like barely takes a little bit off, but you can still get positive GOEs or she got quite a few points, but yeah, you know, and looking, I think the Canadian girl was ahead of her and Karen, if you didn't know one jump from another or one edge from another, you go, Mm -hmm. why did she beat Karen? Mm -hmm. You know? And so I think, um, yeah, that's really tough. And it's so sad that kids aren't caught on it early. Yeah. Because um, by the time you're paying the penalty for under rotation, you've already learned to turn on your pick or swing your leg around or, you know, handle that landing. Um, and it's so difficult to, to, to unlearn, to relearn, you know, to, for Karen to learn to spin on the way up, I mean, that's like a whole new thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and she's near the end of her career. So is it worth it? You know, and um, it's just unfortunate that it didn't get um, corrected early in her career Mm -hmm. because she's a gorgeous skater, but they're going to be looking at her jump landings. And Vincent Joe, they looked at his look at his all the time too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I feel sorry for that because once you get on their list, it appears to me, I'm not in that world much anymore, but it appears to me that they will look at you with a fine-tooth comb. And if you're not on the list, they don't have time to look at everything with a fine-tooth comb. And so some equally bad things slip through with skaters that also have incorrect edges and don't get caught. Yeah. That's tough. It is. What do you think about the Tano arm that is so prevalent right now in skating um, since Brian was the first to do it, you know, and it's such good quality when he did it, you know, arm straight in the air, perfect jump. Um, And now so many people are throwing that arm or both arms over their head. Yes. What do I think of it? Uh, Wow, Valieva. <laughs> I mean, I think she's going to revolutionize skating. Yeah. You know, she just throws that arm up there and she's aerodynamically so uh, tight. I guess I don't know if that's the right word for it. Um, that she spins so fast and uh, her technique is a lot different. I mean, they spin a lot more on the front end, on the pick, on the takeoff which mm-hmm. this is another interesting thing. This is not penalized. Mm-hmm. Whereas under rotation is, pre-rotation is not. And that's, you know, for me, okay, that's fine. That's the rule, you know? So if you pre-rotate, that's going to be fine. And as, until they decide you can't do that, and I don't think they're going to decide you can't do that. Um, then you just have to get your rotation on the end. But uh, the way they do it now 
it's stunning. That's what I'd say. I, I just, yeah, I'm flabbergasted. You know, Valeva has uh, almost perfect position in the air. And then when she lands, she flows and floats and she's flexible. I mean, the things she can do are amazing to me. I mean, if you told me, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, someone would do that, I would have said, mm, I don't think so, you know? Yeah, she's, she is definitely uh, one of the front leaders in changing the sport. There's, there's been a few R Russian women who have come out and they've been doing these quads and triple axles, um, but she has been the most consistent and um, just been dominating this past season. So it, it really has been so impressive to watch her and uh, yeah, to, to see her live the Olympic dream that, you know, every little girl dreams of every um, child, not just little girls, but um, boys too. It's, it's really special. And uh, to do something that no one has ever done before, it's spectacular. So um, I'm sure that there's just going to be so much more excitement. She does up. it so well. And you, mm -hmm. you know, you have this Russian connection and um, you're of the triple girls. I mean, I think uh, it's something to behold. But what do you think about the change in technique? Yeah, um, I, I definitely think pre-rotation is an interesting concept. Uh, I'm definitely not familiar with it because the, the jumps that I learned, like, of course, were didn't didn't learn the pre-rotation stuff but again i wasn't going after quads or triple axles so different ball game uh but yeah i think there should be some checks and balances uh made i think that helps make it more equal um on a playing field for athletes that are competing um all at the same time right now and set some boundaries for what we want to see from our athletes in the future uh but at the same time like you said is is it even going to be possible if they can't pre-rotate we don't know. So I guess it's going to depend on what the ISU is looking for in terms of what they want to see in progress for women's skating. Cause they could push the technical the way they are and allow it to keep going, or they could set the limitations and uh, try to bring back the artistry that skating is kind of missing in some ways right now. Yeah. I feel like um, she's spectacular and it's just wonderful to witness, but um, in an attempt to cover up over the Salt Lake City Olympics, seeing um, changing to their current system has been sort of an evolving attempt to quantify skating, in my opinion. And there's that always that elusive quality that you can't quantify, which is some skaters just sink into the ice or they they arouse an emotion in you that is unquantifiable, but truly spectacular. And so mm -hmm. they're saying, well, what is it about this? You know, well, they're faster, they're more flexible, they're, um, you know, they're doing more interesting positions, whatever. So they keep trying to get at this elusive quality that makes skating so beautiful which I can go back and look at Peggy and Dorothy and people before them and just go, Oh, that is beautiful. You know, Janet Lynn, you know, she's not doing anything that the girls are doing now, but 
if you watch her, yes, she doesn't do the jumps that they did, but she's still exquisite as she moves and interprets music. So hopefully that elusive quality will survive and be the ultimate thing. Um, and I, I don't know the answer. I mean, the answer for me started back in the Salt Lake City Olympics when they changed the system instead of getting rid of the um, judges who were um, cheating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cheating for their countries. Yeah. I think uh, the landscape ahead is just change. <laughs> there's, there's a, everything is constantly evolving and we've seen it with the men in the last uh, like 10 years with how many guys are doing quads now and the level that they're doing them. And women are kind of right on their heels now trying to emulate that same um, excitement and physical ability. So it's, it'll be exciting to see where skating takes us in the future. It's just, it's really unknown right now. <laughs> So I have one more interesting story to tell you um, about judging and politics. Mm -hmm. So um, probably you and most of your people that listen know that um, Brian barely won the Olympics uh, point-wise. It was mm -hmm. like one-tenth of a point from one judge. And um, at that time, technical merit was the tiebreaker. So he got that one-tenth in technical merit, you know, and, and that the title was his. So um, one of the judges was a Russian judge. You may know him, Sasha Vadinin, Alexei, but was uh, the Russian judge for the men. And um, he uh, gave the mark to Brian, you know? So, um, I mean, it was five to four. So he was one of the, the judges. And um, I, you know, didn't think anything about anything. Brian won, boom, life goes on, it's great. And in Washington, D.C. at the World Championships, I think it was 2002, I don't know, I think, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, I saw him, I was there watching, and Brian was there, and um, I said, oh, hi, how are you? And he said, oh, just a minute, I want you to meet my son. He said, I, I want to tell him about you and Brian. I said, oh, well, Brian's in the next room. Let me go get Brian. So we went and sat down and um, he said, I want my son to meet you and I want my son to meet Brian because um, giving Brian the marks in the Olympics was the proudest moment of my life. He said, I went against what my country wanted. I lost my job because of it. Um, but I couldn't be prouder because Brian deserved it and it was the right thing to do. And I still get chills down my spine. Wow. When I, about that. I was totally unaware of this. This is years after the Olympics, but you know, he didn't do what his country wanted him to do, which was probably give it to Canada and trade for, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was explicitly laid out, but uh, he, got in trouble for it and he said i don't wow. care yeah isn't that amazing that is amazing that's really inspiring to hear uh a judge do that because like obviously we know that there's a lot going on behind the scenes and that that honestly does give me chills like wow that's crazy so, you know so it's kind of like 
if a true lover of skater sees something so superb, they're going to do what's right. That's, mm -hmm. that's what you want to believe. And it actually happened for Brian. So I'm like, wow, the stars were aligned. They really were. Wow. That's so cool. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for coming on the podcast and chatting with me today. That was a lot of really interesting insight. I'm sure everybody, uh, love exactly um, what you said in this podcast. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. This is my first podcast. It was really fun. And I think I talked too much. Not at all. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Please leave me a comment, leave me a review. I love hearing what you guys have to say. Follow me on my Instagram. That's where I'm promoting this. My username is at Paulina Edmonds. And stay tuned for my future podcast episodes. I release every Tuesday. And I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.